Welcome to the Graduate Institute In Conversation With podcast series. I'm Lena Menger, Outreach Officer at the Graduate Institute. In this series, we ask renowned experts and thought leaders to address pressing global issues with a Graduate Institute faculty member. This episode features a discussion with Ivan Krastev, Director of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, and Shalini Randeria, Director of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute. This discussion focuses on the paradoxical world and new power dynamics emerging from the COVID-19 crisis. Ivan, let me start with the title of your new book, Is It Tomorrow Yet?, in this book, you argue that the uh, coronavirus and the COVID uh, pandemic that it causes will have a lasting impact on our lives. It will change the world in which we live in profound ways, although we may not always know at the moment what these changes will be because we are in the midst of the uh, pandemic. But you think the crisis that the virus has caused is fundamentally different from the crises that we have seen before, although as far as I can remember, the European Union has always been in crisis, but you say that it is different from both the uh, 2008 financial crisis and the so-called migration crisis. Could you just elaborate in what ways you think the present crisis is different? I do believe that this is the end of a certain cycle. So we have seen changes and the problem with uh, uh, the pandemic is not that it simply changes the world, but it shows us how much the world has been changed. So many of the things that have been there before, for example, the crisis of the global supply chains and the reverse of globalization started already with the global financial crisis. The importance of the borders have been there with the immigration crisis. Uh, and of course, even some of the restriction of the rights have been very much brought by the war on terror before it came with the COVID-19. Uh, but my major argument is you can simply say that this is the second coming of all these three crises. And I do believe that many people have been discussing different aspects of the COVID-19 reality in these terms. So when people like Agamben and others start to talk about the state of exception, for them this was simply, once again, the war on terror, we have a restriction, we have governments that are trying to govern and normalize the state of emergency. When some of the financial experts have been talking about the economic aspects of this, it was very much about as if we are back to 2008-2010. And of course, many people fear that uh, this kind of a nationalistic instinct and uh, closing of the borders and support for closing of the borders are bringing us back to the refugee crisis. My major argument is everything seems very similar, but it is also slightly different. First, uh, support for surveillance is much more higher now when we talk about the public health crisis than it was when it comes on war on terror. People are much more ready basically to be followed, to have these virus tracking apps and so on, so that they were tolerant when it comes uh, to terrorism. And the story is that you are not simply afraid that you're going to be infected, you're very much afraid that you can innocently infect somebody else. When it comes to the economy, it's also different. Financial crisis was basically banking crisis. Now we have both the crisis of demand, the crisis of supply, the deepness of this goes much bigger and also the role of the state in this is totally different. 
before the state was saving banks. Now the state is saving everybody in a certain way with the money that can be given. And also my major argument is that even the type of nationalism that came with the COVID-19 is different than the type of the nationalism that we see with the refugee crisis. The refugee crisis was classical ethnic nationalism. Basically, we was defined simply on origin. Now we was defined on residence. Uh, when Bulgarians decided to go back to Bulgaria uh, for the time of the COVID-19, the local people were not particularly happy because they said, you can infect us. So from this point of view, for a certain period of time, the community was very much those in the borders. It's much more territorial type of nationalism, slightly different than a classical cultural nationalism which came with the refugee crisis, where basically the ethnicity was the only name of the game. So let me pick on that one point on the migrant crisis, because uh, in a sense, yes, you are right. And yet, uh, interestingly, in a country like Austria, uh, I was here in Vienna throughout uh, the uh, lockdown, the Austrian government uh, was trying to get back every Austrian, whether they were holidaying in the South Sea Islands uh, or um, in the Caribbean, uh, back to Austria. So it was very much about uh, citizenship rights, whereas the casualty, in my view, of the pandemic is going to be the rights of migrants. Uh, I think those of refugees are completely forgotten. So human rights have just gone off the uh, political radar and the public uh, uh, discussion. But even migrant rights uh, were uh, discarded or overlooked until everybody realized that if we want to eat our asparagus and if we want our strawberries, we do need a migrant labor from Eastern Europe. And the people who are looking after uh, the elderly in uh, Western European societies, elderly care is primarily in the hands of women from Eastern Europe. So certainly the first people for whom borders got opened exceptionally, was cheap migrant labor moving from Eastern to Western Europe, where the 2015 migrant uh, crisis was that of non-European migrants entering Europe. So I think uh, there is a dimension to the migrant labor, which uh, somehow was not as much in the public eye as it could have been. But the crisis showed how dependent we are. So even if we say, let's eat locally produced food, it's produced in Austrian or German or Swiss soil, but the labor on it is from outside of these countries. Totally agree. In a certain way, what was interesting about this crisis, it started with reaffirming of the borders and the loyalty to the nation state. And it basically ended the moment when the public health crisis became an economic crisis in exposure of the limits, particularly of economic nationalism. Uh, you show it on the level of labor, exactly what you're saying. There was a charter flights for Bulgarian and Romanians to go to Germany and Austria in order to have the harvest of asparagus. Uh, but this was also basically on the trade. All those countries that otherwise were insisting how much they liked the borders, including East Europeans, were the first to open them because economically you totally depend on it. Uh, so from this point of view, the impact of nationalism is slightly different because the, during the refugee crisis, the nationalism was a symbolic politics. You talk about it, you mobilize the national sentiment, but you basically don't see what are the economic and also political consequences of really keeping the borders closed. Now for a while you saw it. And you saw that this is going to be really difficult to deal with. So from this point of view, I do believe we're going to have, as a result of this development, a strange story when it comes up uh, to how Europe is going to look after this crisis. 
you're going to see much more nationalists who are realizing that in order to preserve the relevance of their nation state, they should push for more European cooperation, not because of the love for the European Union and not because of any type of cosmopolitan sentiment, but simply based on a totally clear nation state interest. So this is an interesting paradox because there are several paradoxes which you have been emphasizing uh, in the book, one of them being the paradox of partial deglobalization. I'll come to that in a moment. But here is another paradox that you point to, greater European cooperation as a possible outcome of the crisis, but lesser European integration. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely. And what is interesting is the language. In all previous three crises, Let's forget about the terrorism, which is a different game. But during the refugee crisis and during the financial crisis, the word was solidarity. And what was lacking was total solidarity. So in a certain way, solidarity was absence on the level of transfer of money. Solidarity was absence in the way basically caring of others. If you listen now the language, not much talk of solidarity. It's a lot of talk about national interest, no including talk. Germany and France. When the German uh, chancellor uh, went and together with the French president, they defended the biggest ever transfer in the European history when it comes to money, but also when it comes to power, because we're basically neutralizing the future debts of the EU. Basically, she said, nation state cannot stand alone. It is not that we're overcoming nation-state. It's a not post-national politics that normally people believe federalization right. is. So this is not Hamiltonian moment. It's an Alan Millward moment, when the nation-states understood that their very relevance totally depend on the possibility and capacity to cooperate. And from this point of view, this crisis, in my view, brought something important also to the European publics. Europeans were not so much shocked at what happened in Europe. Nevertheless, the Italians and Spaniards, for good reasons, suffered being totally neglected when they needed uh, help from outside. But as a result of this crisis, Europeans totally differently see the world outside of Europe. This is the first crisis in the which the United States was totally absent. Before, Europeans can agree or disagree of what Americans were doing, but they knew that America is going to claim certain global leadership. And, and, try to cut. and this was there. This American was simply absent, not simply absent. But when you see them on the screen, it looks dysfunctional and broken. So you don't know, can you rely on them? China. Before it, Europeans have for a long time have been living with the illusion that the only thing that interests China is economic things, it's a mercantilist power and so on. And they, they saw a much more muscular and ugly face of the Chinese diplomacy, trying basically to twist the arms of everybody who disagrees with what China is saying. And I do believe from this point of view, paradoxically, what you see in Europe is not so different than you see on the nation state. Out of this feeling of loneliness, you have a much more understanding of Europe, not as a community of values, unfortunately, but as a community of faith. Uh, and you have a, <laughs> a kind of a new version of Europe's presence, where Europe before tried to see itself as the model for others, and then you see that others are not very much picking up the model, not the Chinese, not the Americans, not the Indians. But you're seeing a form of a progressive protectionism which is coming in Europe. Okay, if everybody goes protections, then we're going to tax the digital companies, we're going to tax the major polluters, we're going to do things that we believe are right from our point of view, but this is how we're going to function. And I do believe from this point of view, this is a major change in the way Europe has been developing. It changed very much the self-identity of the European Union, and nevertheless that some of the policies uh, look not so much different, the scale is incredible. 
Uh, if you basically see what was the consensus in Europe after the financial crisis, the first is we're not going to lose on the conditions. The first thing that we did with this crisis, we lose on the conditions. Yes. <laughs> the second was we're not going to mutualize debt. What we're going to do is mutualize debt. So this is not the second coming of the financial crisis. The outcomes are totally different. Europe basically went in a different direction. How successful it's going to be is different. But for me, this is quite important uh, for people not to misrecognize the crisis as something that it is not. It's not the previous crisis, none of the previous three. This is an interesting point. What I want to take up, however, is another point which you just made, which is if you like uh, a shift in the configuration of um, uh, the international political order, or at least the relationships between uh, Europe, China, and the US. As you very rightly say, the US was not only absent, but it also um, compounded uh, uh, the problem by uh, walking out of the uh, WHO at the moment when probably the the most important international organization that was needed is the World Health Organization, right? Um, people waited to see, will China fill the gap? Interestingly, at the World Health Assembly, it looks as if the EU has filled the gap. It has not only managed to raise unprecedented resources at the uh, global level, so not just at the nation state level, which were mobilized by each country for its own citizenry, also in one debate which I think will become very significant next year, and that is who has intellectual property rights and who can make profits out of the vaccines. Interestingly, it was Merkel who went in and said that the vaccine is a global public good, but Xi Jinping came to the meeting and said exactly the same, knowing full well that six of the 10 major companies which are in competition for making the vaccine at the moment are Chinese. Absolutely, and this is critically important. I was recently reading it. Like you, I'm not an expert on this at all, but it was interesting to read the political kind of analysis of what is happening with the vaccines. And he had two issues that are really incredible. The, right, the guy who's following the dynamics had now the competition between the United States, American companies, basically also funded by the American government, on producing the vaccine and the better vaccine and the cheaper vaccine and the Chinese, is like the space competition between the Soviets and the Americans. It's the Sputnik moment, yeah, right? The Sputnik moment. This is an incredibly, basically everybody is putting everything on this. And this is not simply about money, it's about influence, it's about image. And it's public money. It's public money. The second interesting story is, for everybody, of the medical experts and others, when you find a vaccine, this is the end of the crisis because you can vaccinate the population and the major story is whom to vaccinate first, how to do it, whom to go. But here is the poll. Even if the vaccine is there, and even if you can vaccinate everybody that you want at the same time, only 49% of the Americans declared that they're ready to get the vaccine. And paradoxically, almost half of the Germans are also saying that they are not going to do it. So we are also seeing the world in which, while we have been seeing the crisis of the restoration of the trice in the experts, this anti-vaccine movement became so important and you have such a strong libertarian and anarchist movement both from the left and the right, that how are you going to stop the crisis if half of the population is not going to allow it to be vaccinated? And this is interesting, and I totally agree with you that it was Germany 
It was, to be honest, Germany, not the European Union. First, it was the President Steinmeier in an article two weeks after the crisis, together with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia and two other South Korean Prime Minister, and one more, that they went for common policy. Then Germany gave it to the European Union, and the European Union basically did it. So European Union is trying to preserve the idea of the international order and global response. But at the moment when the major clash is between the United States and China, it looks kind of an utopian uh, exercise. It's good that we're trying it, because I do believe nobody's going to basically forgive if not trying. Uh, but it is not easy to believe that it's going to have a major result if this relations between the US and China is in the way it looks now. So let me take up the point you made on trust. Uh, I recall your uh, article written very early on uh, in the first weeks of the lockdown, uh, seven early lessons yeah. from the COVID, where you said, um, interestingly, uh, trust in expertise has been restored. And what we saw was, yes, trust in a certain kind of expertise got restored, particularly virologists have had a field day, as well as certain kind of statistical public health calculations have been very much at the forefront of national discussions. Everybody has an opinion on uh, flattening the curves. Everybody can suddenly read and compare all kinds of national statistics. Government performance is uh, being measured uh, by the number of uh, new cases or the number of deaths. So citizens are also going into this kind of auditing of their government's performance based on numbers. On the other hand, we very quickly saw um, that equally strongly conspiracy theories were doing the rounds. So you had a sort of a moment in which, uh, yes, uh, partly a restoration of trust in certain kinds of scientific expertise, and I think certain countries in which this trust was high did very well in uh, uh, controlling uh, the spread of the pandemic. On the other hand, everywhere in the world. So if you look at social media in India, you look at social media here in Europe and in the US, more conspiracy theories than ever before. And this time with not only the Chinese being blamed for uh, using this as a biological weapon, but also being used for polarizing internally. So in India, you have talk about you know the Corona Jihad as if the Muslim community is responsible as the spreaders, but also Bill Gates becomes the face of a global conspiracy to undermine uh, public health and economies. No, you're very much right. And the, I know the data also about Europe, uh, based on the survey in nine of the countries. First, this is typical for pandemics. It's very difficult to deal with a problem that does not have a villain. In order to solve an issue, people are looking for an enemy. It was easy in the religious society where you believe that basically God was punishing you. But if it's not God, there should be somebody else. Uh, and from this point of view, it's very difficult uh, to make sense of the nature of disaster, particularly of this type. And this is why people are basically trying to see who is behind it. Uh, what we saw in Europe is, first of all, it was turned out that I was too optimistic when I see in general the restoration of the trust in expertise, because basically we see three groups of people in Europe when it comes to the expert knowledge. You have around one third which believes that knowledge works, that experts know what they're doing, and basically they're positive on how it can contribute. You have basically has one third, and I'm not going, who basically does not believe totally in this. And one of the reasons you don't believe in it is that, paradoxically, the strength of the science is what also makes it so difficult to be believed. 
Science is about people disagreeing. Science is about basically different experts having different views. Science is about doubt. And uh, what has happened is that in the early days of the, sound, uh, the science, when you have only one doctor in town, there was no second opinion. It was much easier, basically, <laughs> to trust it. Now it's very difficult. So everybody is picking his own doctor. But there is an important group of around 20-25% who are not anti-expert because they don't believe in science, but because they do believe that uh, basically politicians are totally instrumentalizing expert knowledge. And as the English idiom goes, experts are not on the top, they're on the tap. Uh, and this was quite interesting to see, for example, in Poland, where based on all other predicators, education, liberal attitudes, and so on, you believe that the voters of the civic platform uh, are going to be much more ready to trust expertise. They didn't. they didn't. Because for them, and this is important, we believe that at least this was one of my uh, wrong assumptions, that the growing trust in expertise probably can be transferred into a trust into the government. It's the other way around. You trust the experts to the extent you trust the government. This is it's a very interesting uh, uh, argument. But uh, leave aside the question of trust. One of your arguments in uh, uh, that piece, as well as another piece which you wrote, was on the mimicry uh, of uh, uh, government uh, responses. So you called it the copycat policy uh, responses. And here the interesting thing is, why does trust in governments vary, although all governments have done exactly the same thing? <laughs> this is an interesting story, and I found at least my key to try to make sense of the fact that you have such a different governments, but also such a different societies. Why so authoritarian, democratic, authoritarian, democratic, no but sense. also demographically very different, right. culturally very different. Why are they adopting the same policy? In 1921, which is interesting because it was just a year after the Spanish flu, the famous uh, Chicago economist Frank Knight wrote a book about risk and uncertainty. And he basically said people normally deal with risk. And they're calculating, and on the base of the previous experience and so on, they can calculate the risk. But there's a situation of ultimate uncertainty because you don't know what to do. You don't know the president. For example, we didn't understand the nature of the virus early on. We didn't understand how dangerous it is. So then you start to work with the worst case scenario. And if you're a government, the most important is if you're doing what others are doing, then you're not going to be accused of not doing certain things. So it is a self-preservation of the governments simply to copy others. From this point of view, the example of Sweden is a great example of this. Swedish government, I hugely respect for daring to be contrarian in this situation. And they have been well positioned as if to do it because the social distancing is their way of life. You know? <laughs> you half the population, half lives, the population alone. lives alone. This is, a, this is a country with a very kind of efficient uh, health system. So they, they had a good reasons to try. Okay, fine. In the beginning, people were very kind of proud of this thing that they did uh, in the survey that I saw. People who didn't vote for the government, it was in Sweden, that at a high percent trusted the government because of it. It became a national pride. Till the moment it didn't work. Till the moment when we have high deaths. And also, normally people said we're doing this because we're going at least to reduce the economic costs of the crisis. The story is that Sweden is going to have a decline which is deeper than Austria, which yes. locked down everything. So from this point of view, the cost of being wrong 
in a situation of total uncertainty so high that you are ready to copy others, even if you don't know whether you're right or wrong. And I do believe this explains why in the beginning everybody did the same, and why at the same time with the development of the crisis, you start to get much more information what is happening in your country. So the countries did everything together in the beginning, but they're exiting from the, from the, uh, from the lockdown in a very different way, with a very different timing, because now they know what to do and what to expect. At least they, they have this feeling. But exactly on that point, the question would be, do you think they're exiting from the lockdown uh, in part in response to uh, growing public uh, uneasiness and the uh, kinds of moods in different societies are different? Because that would lead me to the question of, uh, is democracy temporarily in deep freezer or in Europe, or are we going to really see uh, um, certain kinds of uh, changes in the way liberal democracy uh, democratic institutions uh, will come back in certain countries, uh, come back in uh, different forms. One of the casualties may be demonstrations of public protest, although, as we have seen, the U.S. is the absolutely contrary example of what we would have expected. And then, of course, a global um, support of demonstrations uh, in, all over Western Europe uh, for Black Lives Matter. This is extremely important because in a certain way when we say that the governments are trying to get information, this is not only medical information. All kinds of governments are very much monitoring the social media space. And the most uh, difficult, particularly for the demographic governments, is to come with a policy that you cannot implement. Uh, exposing weakness is the major vulnerability. If I tell you to put a mask and you're not going to put a mask, then I have a problem. Uh, so from this point of view, the governments uh, were very much trying to see what is the limits. And even when the medical argument, many of the doctors believed that look, uh, the, the exit of the lockdown came too early and so on, the government said, that's the limit. And it is a psychological limit and it comes from the mood of the population. What is also interesting, and for me it was critically important, during this crisis, citizens of every single country is all the time comparing what is happening in their country with what is happening in the other countries. So the moment Austria started to exit, the German debate changed. Because you all the time compare, particularly countries that believe that they have something common between each other. And in my view, this is very important, and it comes the story that you're talking about the protest. For me, uh, we have a crisis of democracy before any COVID-19. So from this point of view, democracy was a kind of the most vulnerable patients, patients of COVID-19. It has a pre-existing condition. <laughs> Uh, and one of the problems of democracy was that for many people, particularly for the younger generation, they know that they're living in a democracy only when they go protest and can safely come back. Because they don't trust elections, they don't believe that you're making change here and there. And then comes basically COVID-19 who said, don't go on the square. Don't meet in the big groups. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, my argument in the book was if, 19, if the beginning of the 20th century, the fear was of the presence of the crowds. The difficulty for democracy is the absence of Absolute the crowds. Crowd. <laughs> yeah. Because the absence of the crowds are very easily going to convince these people that they're not living in a democratic regime anymore. So from this point of view, the people that I saw on the streets of the United States, for me, is basically reclaiming the United States as a democratic country. And the fact that people have been basically locked for a certain period of time without getting together, without doing this and that, was very important impulse. 
you want to do something together with the other people, you want to exercise your power not as a power of both, but as, as expression of the intensity of your feelings. So this is why I do believe this kind of an aspect of democracy is going to be critical, and here America is going to be interesting. Imagine for the moment that we're going to see the rise of the infections in the United States in the cities in which you have a protests. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a major issue. It could be an issue. This is going to be a major issue. Plus, in countries like uh, Hong Kong, in a certain way, the health, public health issues have been used very much as demobilizing the public. Telling them, listen, if you want to go into protest, we're going to keep you responsible for spreading the disease. So this is a kind of these dynamics which I find particularly interesting. And the other on the democratic side was, as you know, during the lockdown, you're sending home non-essential institutions. One of the non-essential institutions that was sent home was the parliaments. And because the parliaments were perceived as a kind of a weak spot anyway, people basically less and less value the role of the parliament when they see that everything can in a way function without them. But what about the judiciary? It seems to have also been sent home. So actually, what we've seen is a huge centering of power. In, in the, exactly, in the executive. No, no, this is extremely important because normally the strengthening of the executive was one of the strange effects of globalization. We have been talking all the time exactly. to what extent globalization basically is decentralizing powers and others. But when it comes to redistribution of power, it was the executives. And this is a kind of a critical issue which probably uh, is going to be challenged. And the more the executive is strengthening, the more you see people on the streets. Because part of the strengths of the protest is that they're replacing a weak parliaments. It's not by accident that in France you have so many demonstrations historically. Because their system goes for a weak parliament. So the, the street is the constraint of the executive. In France you have an overpowerful president and over-nervous street. And this is the only balance of power that basically works. This is interesting. Let me pick up just finally one point, which is uh, the point you just made on deglobalization. So in a sense, uh, you, as you very rightly say, there is another paradox in there. Paradoxically, one could see the virus as uh, an agent uh, of globalization. On the other hand, this virus uh, will change the nature of uh, globalization. Uh, so could you say something about what you call the softer version of globalization, which you think Europe should also follow? So one is a diagnostic question, the other is a policy prescriptive question. Listen, one of the things that happened is on the moment when we basically went back to our houses. So your state-home nationalism. We suddenly realized that we're living in a common world. We started watching uh, different TV channels. You're changing, changing the channels. You go to other languages that you don't know a word of, but you know what they're talking about if it was news time, because everybody was talking only about COVID-19. Uh, so the idea that we are part of the same thing because we have the same threat and we're discussing the same thing came to people who you are never going to accuse of being cosmopolitan. At the same time, the governments understood something totally different, that if the world is common in a certain way, we, have, we are not prepared basically to deal with vulnerability coming from interdependence. You cannot rely anymore basically on medicine coming from China or mass coming from Malaysia. It's not simply about China. So the story is that while the people opened their minds how much we are connected to all others, governments fell in love with a certain version of a state, which, by the way, is not a welfare state. 
but it's a stockpiling state. This is a state like a storage. Storing. You will basically want to have masks for the next crisis, food for the next crisis, gasoline for the next crisis. So in a certain way, we are ready to allow the market, but now we want state to insure us against the market, not so much by taming it politically like before, but storing for us certain type of things that we're going to need. So you don't think there'll be a renationalization of some kinds some of kind industries production? Be, but interestingly enough, paradoxically, uh, what I don't see, what I expected probably more, is public support for governments entering uh, economy in a big way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no kind of classical nationalization with the public companies. For example, the fact that Lufthansa can be nationalized is not perceived as a good news by the Germans. This is the interesting story. But uh, we should be sure, the Germans said, that in the next crisis we're going to get this of our own, that of our own. And here comes the European uh, paradox. Europe is going to stand in support of certain form of uh, liberal opening, globalization, interdependency, what we're doing with the vaccine. At the same time, Europe is going more and more to position itself to be prepared to function in the world which is much more protectionist. And from this point of view, the only viable protectionism in Europe is on continental level. The fact that Bulgaria is going to store masks for ourselves is ridiculous. But probably European Union can't. And European Union can do it with other kinds of major goods. So from this point of view, you're going to have European Union that came as the version and the model for the future interdependent, open, globalized world, is also going to have this other phase. And this is basically European Union consolidated very much by the pressure of deglobalization and exercising this type of progressive protectionism uh, as a policy option. As a regional policy option. as a regional policy option. So the casualty, or one casualty of this, is going to be uh, the relations with the global south. Totally. Do you know also they're not going to be even a global south in a classical sense? Europe is going to have regions of predominance. Uh, They're going to be special focus on Africa, obviously. Uh, But then uh, when you don't believe in a globalized world, you start to see the world totally differently. You're focusing on certain things, you're doing this and that. Because, and this is the interesting story, who's going to win and who's going to lose at the end of the day of this game in geopolitical terms. It's going to be the regions who are going to best manage to consolidate. And this consolidation can have different forms. You can have a hegemonic power doing this. You can have it much more kind of a viable regional integration. But I do believe this is what we are going to see. And this is why it is so difficult. This is why I don't buy the idea that we're going to have ideologically divided worlds between the United States and China, because the clash is going to be there, but the rules of the games, the instruments of the games are going to be totally different than they have been in the Cold War. And just to give you one sociological support for this, when we have been doing this polling, uh, by the way, the, the group of people who believes that the world is going to be a kind of a new Cold War, in which Europe is siding with the US against China, was the smallest of the three groups that we have been studying. And interestingly enough, this group of people was less interested in democracy and the rule of law. So it was much more perceived as a power politics between the West yes. and China than a kind of ideological conflict between democracy and authoritarianism. Liberal democracy yeah. versus yeah. liberal so thank you very, very much, Ivan, uh, for this conversation. And uh, I think uh, we will test some of these predictions uh, with your next book next year.
That was Ivan Krastev and Shalini Randeria discussing the paradoxes of a post-COVID-19 world. For more information about the Graduate Institute, please visit graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Lena Menge. Thanks for listening.